But in the Space Force Doctrine document, all you really see is enablement and integration into everybody else's stuff. And the language also kind of makes it look like that the Space Force is not part of the Joint Force because it says support to the Joint Force a lot instead of saying as a key member of the Joint Force. Some people may think that's semantics and it's just word games, but when you're dealing with policy or doctrine, words mean things and people will get the wrong idea. From the Defense and Aerospace Report, this is The Downlink, a podcast about the intersection of space, the space business, and defense. Not just what's over the horizon, but what's happening above it. I'm your host, Laura Winter. Hi again. It's week five of Russia's war in Ukraine, and much of Russia's land forces are still, yes, still, stuck in the freezing mud and taking up defensive positions northwest of the Ukrainian capital, Kyiv. And just this week, its plans to launch a Mars mission is stuck on Earth. The European Space Agency, or ESA, on Friday suspended all of its launch agreements with the Russian state space corporation, Roscosmos. That decision means ESA's ExoMars rover is without a ride for the September Mars launch window. ESA is saying missing that window pushes the ExoMars mission back possibly to 2026. But that's not the only news on future space missions. The U.S. Space Force Space Training and Readiness Command, or STARCOM, released its planning doctrine. It's the fundamentals of how to plan for the execution and leveraging of space power. This is the first space warfighting doctrine since the new branch released its inaugural doctrine in August 2020. That was called Space Power. Engineers will appreciate the title of this new document. It's called Space Doctrine Publication 5-0, Planning. I'm going to let Christopher Stone, who's a senior fellow for space studies at the Mitchell Institute for Aerospace Studies, fill us in. Hello, Chris. Thank you for coming back to tell us about the latest strategic development for the U.S. Space Force that seems to have slipped under everyone's radar. It's good to see you. Thanks. Appreciate you having me back. Before we dive in, tell us what you're working on now over at the Mitchell Institute. Well, right now I'm uh, working on a policy paper that's um, regarding space-based missile warning and how we should be uh, transiting from the standard uh, old method of missile warning to including missile tracking, given the developments from the standard ballistic missiles to the more maneuverable hypersonic and low-flying missile systems, as well as, uh, as we saw last summer with the Chinese fractional orbital bombardment system, where it launched a hypersonic glide vehicle once around the Earth and back down into China. So there has to be a better way of keeping chain of custody, as it's called, um, to make sure that we know where it's going, because it's not going to be pilot, uh, flying the standard easy-to-plot ballistic trajectories in the future. In fact, most missile systems anymore are maneuverable and aren't the old-school ballistic kind. So that's that's my main project I'm working on, as well as uh, just being prepared to comment on anything going on like we're doing today. What is SDP 5-0, and when was it released to the public, and who released it? Could you break it down so that those who have not spent time in a five shop will understand? Sure. So this this recent doctrine document was released by the uh, STARCOM or the Space Training and Readiness Command that's currently based in Colorado. Um, it is the field command of the U.S. Space Force that is responsible 
for creating uh, doctrine as well as all the training plans uh, for guardians as they start from from a new recruit till till the end of their careers. And so the doctrine development piece is is one thing that they're responsible for doing and, and doing well. So the first document that came out a couple of years ago was the capstone document that is called Space Power, Doctrine for Space Forces. That one was sort of a primer of what space power means to the Space Force overarching um, the different segments, uh, different uh, viewpoints on various ways of employing space power. And then this next one that you ask about is on planning. And each service and the, the joint staff have their own doctrine documents on various parts of uh, warfighting operations. Uh, and planning is one of the big ones. And so the fact that their second big one out of the out of the pipe was planning is is a pretty good a good sign. It was apparently created and done in December of 21, according to the timestamp on the document. But um, I didn't start noticing it until it was released uh, about a week or two ago, and uh, and then I started sharing it and reading it when I saw it. So this is the next newest uh, doctrine document, and looking forward to chatting more about it. You know, actually, it was released just on the 13th. So what do you think of it? I think it's a it's a good starting document. Um, as most Space Force documents say in their intro, they're, they're living documents. They're not meant to be static for all time. Um, and most doctrine documents have changed numerous times over the last several years and decades. So um, if anyone's thinking this is going to be the permanent view on planning, they're they're probably not going to uh, be happy with that, but that's that's not how how doctrine development works. Um, I think there there are some good points in here. One of the things that most service doctrine does is they try to at least mirror the joint doctrine, which is considered the next level up of doctrine documents. So the the joint chiefs of staff and the joint staff that supports them are basically the service chiefs of each of the military services, and they have a way of unifying their operations between different domains, air, land, sea, space, and cyber, and things of that sort, into joint doctrine that allows everybody to work together under the same set of rules. And with respect to um, the services, they usually are a little more specific about their service functions and less about the bigger picture. But a lot of services, such as the Air Force and the Space Force now, they, they try to mirror what the joint doctrine says so it's an easier plug-in. And that's what you see in this document, is you see um, some mention of, of space activities that are unique or should be considered by Space Force planners, but also um, model the, the process itself, the joint planning process, in what they call the space planning process. And so because of that, that makes it a lot easier um, for Space Force officers and enlisted who want to get joint credit to be able to be ahead of the curve by understanding the joint planning process, given it's essentially the same, the same thing in this document. Wouldn't that also make it possible for other service members, you know, let's say from the Army or the Navy to also better understand the space perspective? just because the terminology that's being used mostly throughout the document is also from the, the joint sphere? It could, um, but really the, the, the joint similarities kind of end at the process and the, the actual space planning document, while mentioning some spacey related things, they don't really, um, they're not as independent focused, independent operations focused as say the Marine Corps, or the Army or the Navy's uh, doctrine is. 
this one tends to be very much into the integration and enabling uh, viewpoint of space into the joint force rather than space force as a key piece of the joint force. And so while the process linkages are great, this is one area that I think should be one of the first things that they edit in the future is they try to get away from that language because really enabling and integration while important is the same language that space people have been using since at least the 80s and 90s. And so there's really no difference there. If you're looking at it from a new service doctrine, then the main difference between, say, the Air Force or the Navy or whatever is you have to show what independent operational options, as it mentions in the intro, is unique and what can we really bring besides optimized SATCOM and GPS, you know, and things of that sort. Which again, they're all important and they should be mentioned, but it just seemed to me to be a little lacking on the key identification or the key identity pieces of the Space Force that could have been a little more helpful to help other services understand what's different. And I think if a service member from the Navy or the Army reads this, they'll probably come away with saying either A, I don't know what they're talking about with the segment thing, and that makes sense, or they would come away thinking that the Space Force is not an armed force or a warfighting force, that they're more of a support force to terrestrial operations. And I think that's the, uh, the wrong image that service doctrine should give to other services. The commercial sector is mentioned more than a few times, but what I found interesting was the following statement. Space forces provide a diverse set of capabilities, which are constrained by the operating environment and provided by a variety of commercial, civil, uh, intelligence community, and military organizations with often diverging or unaligned interests. These competing interests can create barriers to access and warfighting integration that require critical consideration as they create command and control challenges to space power planning. Can you explain how these competing interests create barriers, at least from the you know, viewpoint of this document and possibly challenges to access uh, command and control? Is this a valid thing? Well, the, the issue that you raise in that paragraph was talking about how space is not just a military operational area, that it is an area that has civil and commercial interests as well as foreign, obviously. And so from a military perspective, when a lot of the, quote, services on the support side are purchased by the government, including the Department of Defense, from the commercial sector, such as satellite communications, um, and in many cases growing in, in, in the imagery uh, side of, of things, you have a difference where, yeah, you, you may be paying for the service, but you don't necessarily command and control the vehicle. And so you have to have a way of bridging that gap between the commercial sector operators and the military planners and operators to know what would be useful in a certain circumstance. So let me give you an example. If like back in Iraq timeframe, we really did not need or feel the urge to share NRO, national technical mean quality imagery with the Iraqi security forces or the Afghans or in some cases, even some other allied as, allies and partners, but we can share pretty high quality commercial imagery with them. That way we can still share information with them, but without showing them really all that we can do and keeping some of that close hold for special needs. And so as a result, we have to build the right memorandums of agreement and partnership organizational agreements 
And so what you've seen ever since that started about 20 years ago or more, as that's become a more of a thing um, to where the DOD is becoming more of a service acquirer and less of a service provider in some cases, because we're trying to get after the war fighting piece is how do you get the commercial sector more integrated into the planning and operational sense from like the, the big wide theater space, hundred kilometers and up kind of stuff. And so You've got the uh, Commercial Space Operations Center up in Pennsylvania that AGI has, which kind of links a lot of the commercial players together. And then you have commercial folks that are actually seated with the Space Force people at the Combined Space Operations Center out at Vandenberg Space Force Base, uh, and even potentially at the National Space Defense Center in Colorado to help bridge that communications gap and make sure that everybody is on board. Now, the good thing is, is most of the CEOs of these commercial companies have been very willing to serve as helpers or, uh, or, or, or I guess, partakers of, of the operational needs of warfighting and deterrence in space. And so because of that strong relationship is why you're seeing not only better engagement on the operations floors and in the planning sectors, but you're also seeing commercial providers participating in war games and exercises in addition to day-to-day. So that's kind of a, a big thing. Now, the, the differences between other service branches is like the army may have, you know, people like the the old Blackwater companies or the security contractors kind of working side by side in many cases for, you know, providing security to dignitaries and things or even key infrastructure in, in some war-torn countries. But the difference between that and the space side is that we've been working commercially for a while. Um, so it's not really a new thing, but just the the scope and the, the expansion of, of use of, of commercial sector and the fact that the commercial sector is now doing things that only U.S., you know, U.S. and other governments were able to do, such as launching things, operating things, sending people, um, even operating out in the moon area, just shows that there's a lot of growth in technology that needs to be leveraged. And the best way to do that is to partner with commercial. On the civil side, one real quick, that you've got things like weather satellites that NOAA and others have. You've got, you've got Earth observation satellites that could be used for other various means, such as Landsat that's used for watching the, the shifts and patterns in, in, in the land areas around the world. And so you have councils like the National Space Council that's supposed to integrate all the government assets. Um, and then you have other entities such as um, the, the, the CSPOC that I mentioned earlier and others that kind of bridge the gap between the commercial sector and then the user's advisory group for the Space Council, which also includes quite a few of those, those folks. So space is unique in that respect, that there's a lot of partnerships across foreign, civil, commercial um, to provide the needs to support the terrestrial. What isn't really articulated much in this document and in others, other documents before is the warfighting and deterrence piece and how exactly is the space um, what space brings to that different from the other terrestrial domains. Um, and so while it shows, shows some differences in the sense that there's three segments, land, electromagnetic, and space and all that, that's great. Um, that's basic space 101, but it doesn't really get into the warfighting piece as much. So maybe we'll see some subsections of that, like the Air Force sometimes does, where they have the big three or the big five, and then they have some subsection uh, doctrine follow-ups that come later. So we'll have to see. I'm going to ask you a curveball. This document was finalized in December, but only just released earlier this week, as I mentioned before. That means it was before a private U.S. citizen, one with the will and the means to involve his privately held space launch and communications company in a foreign conflict. 
obviously I'm speaking of Elon Musk and SpaceX. How should this development affect planning? Well, uh, th- this gets back to the, the stuff I mentioned earlier about the commercial partnerships. I mean, Starlink is essentially a, a communications construct. It provides people to, it's an it's a orbital internet service. And um, he's been launching these in, in large batches per rocket uh, for a while now. And he's even begun to deorbit some older ones and replace them with new ones. And so this has really been helpful in keeping the communication lines open for the Ukrainians, given the counter space activity that the Russians have been doing localized into the Ukraine locality. So where oh, they're it, jamming. And it's even been useful in communications between, say, uh, drone operators in Ukraine and um, their al- artillery assets. Right. So, so this has been helpful in, in getting around some of the things that the, the standard architecture that's been jammed or taken out or whatever. This gives them additional means to, to do things. Now, they're just as, they're just as um, easy to target as anything else they're not they're not like designed as i as i as far as i know to withstand and have counter jam they might i don't know that he hasn't articulated that publicly but one thing to think about is just like we we have to consider commercial options that may be considered less uh escalatory in a certain environment so if the u.s doesn't want to are you know officially engage with military hardware or military resources but they can assist by providing a commercial means, kind of like I mentioned earlier with the imagery or the or the communications with other countries that they're not necessarily top tier allies, but they're still our partners and we want to help them out. That could be one thing. <clears throat> the other thing I would mention is about commercial players is there have been a couple of different things that people have been saying about these things. And sometimes I think people make too much out of it. And I guess in some ways it makes sense. But the first thing I'll mention is every every commercial player from any country that operates in space is held accountable to that that launching countries per outer space treaty and other international agreements. So while Elon may want to do all this stuff and he can, he has to do it with the blessing of the federal government. So he can't just throw stuff in and say use it. He probably he probably had to go through the same wickets of selling the services as he would with any other service sale. So it has to go through all those USTR, U.S. trade representatives and all the other different commercial processes to sell, sell the information or the, or the equipment. So that's not like he's not acting on his own. You know, he, he can't by, by law. So he had, to, he had to have had some, some high-level approval to do this as a means of helping rather than sending in military uh, equipment to provide additional communication aid. Doesn't mean we can't send military equipment. We've done that in other areas with like, javelin missiles and things but um, again if you can have a commercial option that's there why not so that's one thing the other thing that people have been kind of talking about is is you know what do you consider you know worth retaliating if if something is hit so if a commercial sector satcom entity like starlink or one of the intel sat birds or something that may have some sort of support to the the actual conflict in whatever manner then how how do you respond to that? Do you just let it go? Do you let the attack hit, whether it's a kinetic hit or a jamming or a high-powered microwave or whatever? And so some people have been starting to think, well, maybe we should treat them like, you know, merchant vessels are in the ocean. You know, if it's flagged by that country, then the Navy is responsible for protecting the lines of communication. 
And you see that in the document, it mentions lines of communication, and then it mentions another another space specific thing that I don't remember the acronym, but um, it kind of talks to some of that issue. Uh, but it doesn't really say how you should behave. It just says, remember these things are there. So as this discussion continues in policy circles, um, we'll see how that goes. In, in most foreign country viewpoints, adversary country viewpoints, and even our own, a lot of people think that because it's just a machine, that escalation, you know, whether it's in space or elsewhere, may not be worth it because it's, an, it's a machine. But if you look at the adversary's viewpoint, the adversary's viewpoint believes that everything that belongs to them, that is critical infrastructure, is worth responding to. And so we need to understand that. Planners should understand that going in is not so much what our policy says that we should do. You should also understand the adversary's point of view and know that it's probably 99.9% cases are going to be different than what our, our current viewpoint is. If you could change a thing or two in the document, what would it be? Well, as I mentioned earlier, the document's a great, a great document. It's a great starting document. I'm glad they used they, they did the five planning document as the as the next one out of the out of the thing because you got you can't really do operations without planning. At least you shouldn't. I think it would be great if they had a like the Marine Corps has a strategy document and a planning document. I think that would be awesome because um, the Air Force doesn't really do that. They kind of blend strategy and planning into the same thing. But if I could, you know, add or improve upon it, I would probably say that while General Bratton's forward rightfully talked about the, I think it even quoted the Title 10 language with the Space Forces establishment that mentioned everything from supporting terrestrial operations as an armed force and all this other stuff, and then have independent options. And the planning document itself talked a lot about enabling and integration, but it didn't really talk about independent operations. And it didn't really explain how planning for independent options are either different or similar. And that, I think, shows to other services who are more willing to do that. Um, I think they just they, they come across as that Space Force is still a support service and it's not an armed force or it's not a warfighting force, which I know that's not the case. Um, but a lot of people are so used to hearing, and even the policy people in the current administration are using the enablement and integration language again, rather than warfighting, contested, deterrent, you know, forces. All these key terms that mean things to military people um, are not as, as used as much in this document as I think it should have been. And I think that's one area that I think they should expand in the next version is explaining the difference. Let me give you an example. So the Navy has a subsection of their operations that talk about carrier operations. And even though they may chop some airplanes off to the air component commander in a theater, they still retain a good chunk of stuff to do their ocean-focused carrier fleet protection mission. And the Air Force has doctrine documents on subsections of their air superiority mission, such as strategic attack and close air support and all that kind of stuff. But in the Space Force doctrine document, all you really see is enablement and integration into everybody else's stuff. And the language also kind of makes it look like that the Space Force is not part of the Joint Force because it says support to the Joint Force a lot instead of saying as a key member of the Joint Force. Some people may think that's semantics and it's just word games, but when you're dealing with policy or doctrine, words mean things and people will get the wrong idea that need to get the right idea in order to make sure that you have what you need to make that doctrine work. Thanks for making the time to speak with me, Chris. No problem. Glad to be here as always. 
That's the end of this week's episode. If you're attending Satellite 2022 here in Washington, D.C., I'll be there, so please say hello. For the latest defense news and analysis, listen to the Defense and Aerospace Report's daily podcast hosted by Vago Maradian. And to keep your eye on what's happening in the maritime domain, check out Cavus Ships. And subscribe to the Downlink Podcast on iTunes, iHeart, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and Google Podcasts. I'm Laura Winter, and thank you for listening.